Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Season two of HBO Succession is back, and the Ringers Chris Ryan and Jason Concepcion are here to give you the latest in Roy family drama. Every Sunday night, they'll be breaking down what we just saw on our new show called Number One Boys, a Succession After Show. You can tune in live on the Ringers Twitter every Sunday night right after the episode ends. Hello and welcome to Jam Session. I'm Amanda Dobbins. Juliet Lemon is still out chasing that summer energy. And when you listen to this, great news, I will be too. Amanda <laughs> Dobbins finally gets a vacation. The feel-good story that everyone has been waiting for. But that's okay. We would not leave you alone without Jam Session, even at this high summer season. So today, I am joined by Donnie Kwok. Donnie, hello. Hello. And we are here. We're recording now. A big summer mood podcast. Is that, that's accurate, right? It's accurate. I yeah. mean, what if something crazy happens in the interim between now and when this comes out? If something crazy happens, we have many dedicated podcasters on the Ringer Dish Network. I'm going to come back in and record will, an intro. Who will be here for you. Tea time, substitutes. There are many people in the Ringer community committed to bringing you breaking celebrity news. Just not me this week because we're I'm co- on summer vacation. We're covered. Yeah. But anyway, so Donnie and I are going to do, because it's a summer podcast, we're going to do some summer reading. But first, Donnie has prepared a very special mystery bag. We're starting with mystery bag this week. Let's just, let's dive in. Yeah, it's an it's an Asian mystery bag. Wow. Yeah. So Donnie has picked, <laughs> for anyone who doesn't know the rules of mystery bag, Donnie has picked three topics. I don't know what they are. Mm. And he is going to present them to me. And then we will discuss. And the only guidelines you have had were that... You needed to feel it's relevant to the jam session community. Right, right. I was struggling with that a little bit, but I think I found good topics. Can I sidebar real quick? Yeah. The concept of a mystery bag is actually big in Asia shopping where you go to like a store and that store will put a mix of things in a bag Mm -hmm. and then set a price for it. And then you buy it and you don't know what it's like a shirt, a pair of pants. But you didn't get to pick them out. Okay. And and I, like, I see that concept coming to America now. Are there descriptions? Are there like kind of any guidelines? It's just, just kind of like this is a mix of shit. I've been to a couple of bookstores, including one here in Los Angeles called The Ripped Bodice, which is a uh, female-owned yeah, female romantic bookstore. It's lovely. It's in Culver City, and they do a tremendous job curating all sorts of stuff. It's both erotic and romantic fiction. They're trying to to, line. to reclaim the genre, if you will. But they do a thing where the um the books will be wrapped and then there are there's like a plot description, but you know, without specifics or it's just a few words and then you have to buy it on the basis of like the wrapping paper. It's it's honestly the I most mean, fun I've had kinda, in a long time. It, it's kind of the concept behind subscription boxes, but I guess yeah. we're going off track a little bit. That's true. No, no, no. Whatever. It's it's our podcast. <laughs> it's summer. It's the concept of mystery. It's nice. It's so you have to trust someone else to put something together for exactly. you, which just, is what we're doing here on this like podcast. Just like you've trusted me. So are you ready what to, a setup. You, I'm ready. to open my mystery bag? Yeah, let's go. All right. So since this is going in the future. Okay. August 15th, 2018. Yes. Does that date have any significance to you? No, but I'm Googling it right now because this is my <laughs> podcast and I can do whatever I want. Wow. Just so you know, when you Google August 15, 2018, it's just like a lot of calendar apps. Well, okay. I, I actually hope my Googling is correct because okay. I'll have pie on my face if not. But that was the day that a movie called Crazy Rich Asians hit theaters. Wow. It's been one year. In one year of Crazy Rich Asians. Are we just going to have a giant fight about <laughs> Crazy Rich Asians right now? No, 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 no. <laughs> 
I enjoyed Crazy Rich Asians to an extent. Amanda really enjoyed it. Well, let's talk about that. Okay, I, yeah, let's talk about it. I think it. that you are being really generous because you're on this podcast and you want to be nice. You hated Crazy no, no, Rich Asians well, you know, when you saw it. On my first impression, you know, first impressions aren't always the most telling impression, right? Mm-hmm. So initially I wasn't entertained and I didn't like it. But upon review, I think I was a little harsh initially and maybe my expectations were too high and they weren't met. And so I was a little harsh. Can you talk a little bit more about your expectations? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you picked the topic. So the topic isn't Crazy Rich Asians. Yeah. It's Crazy Rich Asians adjacent. Okay. You know, it's funny because I was looking back. It, it's amazing. It's been a year. Uh, Googling it and reliving the fucking thousands of think pieces that it created, including one by me on the ringer.com. Great website. That's a great piece that you should read. And Jane wrote one too. But yeah, it's it's kind of crazy that in one year, I mean, it's been a year since all of that hype and right. hullaboo. So the hullabaloo that you're referencing is that Crazy Rich Asians, in addition to being like a a pretty big deal blockbuster, there was a big marketing campaign that went along with it, which was, was like this, that Asians and Asian Americans are not represented in the movies exactly. enough. And so to support this movie meant that you were supporting Asian and Asian American representation in movies. Exactly. I mean, I mean, part of what I reference in my piece is this quote that the directors and the producers were kind of trumpeting. It's not a movie, it's a movement. Which I went to a screening in April of 2018 and they were already using that tagline yeah, at the screening. Yeah, which was a good tagline. I mean, it opened $35 million. I think I checked box office mojo today, $175 million gross. So, I mean, a very successful movie. What I wanted to do today is mm-hmm. not talk about the movie because, I mean, good or bad, it's kind of irrelevant, Can I right? just say it's the perfect plane movie of all time? I've watched it like three times on a plane perfect now. Perfect plane movie is such a low bar, though. There's so many perfect plane movies. What makes it perfect? Just because it's a rom-com and light and you might cry? All of those things are great. It moves quickly. There's it does this, move quickly. There's a sense of, of place and of travel to it as mm. well, uh, at least for me because I live in the United States. And it's funny. And again, it just, you can understand the plot really easily. You don't have to, like, be locked in, which I like. I think that there's nothing wrong on Earth with a really obvious plot. Plot is great, and rom-coms are great, in my opinion. Yeah. You read the book, right? I started it. I tried to, because I wanted to kind of prepare myself for what I was seeing, Mm -hmm. but I couldn't really get through it. It was too dense. Wow. Yeah. Too Too much going on. Too many characters. There are a lot of characters and also a lot of, like, food and shopping references, which I love. But I did read some of the passages that I thought could have been in the movie to make the movie better. Details. Of course, book movie adaptations, there's always those things. Okay, anyway. All right, anyway, your topic. I'm sorry. I so just this is my to topic. Crazy Rich Asians came out a year ago. I have a friend who kind of jokes like Crazy Rich Asians was this big monumental thing mm-hmm. for the cast of Crazy Rich Asians. So I kind of want to assess love it. the careers of the people that were in it and then also follow that up with a question. You yes. want the question now or later? Well, is the question related to a specific person in the cast? No. Okay. It's a general question. All right. So we we should just talk about some of the major cast members. Okay. So let's talk about where are they now one okay. year later. Because it's I think it's been a great year for a lot of these people. It has. We'll start with Henry Golding, okay. who I think was essentially, he had a travel show, I believe, but this was definitely his first major movie career. It, movie. Was, his, it was his breakout. Yeah. And he's having a great time. He was also in A Simple Favor, which was released, which is great. I like that movie. And that, 
that movie was filmed before Crazy Rich Asians was released. It's very rare that an actor kind of gets this lucky in terms of picking two projects that are released in the same time and they're both good mm-hmm. and people both like them. Right. Because, you know, so many things can go wrong. But he really lucked out last year. So then he was on the cover of GQ. He's going to be in the new Paul Feig movie. He seems to be getting like— Isn't he in Black Panther 2 rumored— Maybe. I'm looking at his IMDb page and that hasn't been updated, but, you know, they don't update rumors. I am, like, I follow his wife now on Instagram. Mm -hmm. That's who— Is she, like, a travel blogger or something? She's a fitness blogger now as well. I mean, I think they travel a lot and they have, like, they definitely cross-promote. But he became so famous so quickly that now I'm also aware of his, like, wife's business endeavors. Attractive couple. Yes, they are also extremely attractive. So— it seems like he's doing great. Yep. Okay. Do you disagree? Anything you want to add? No, I agree with you. He's, okay. do, he's doing well for himself. Of somebody with kind of, I would say, you know, he's very good looking, obviously. I would say talent-wise, you know, we'll still see, I guess. It remains to be seen. I don't think he's quite extended himself anywhere to be like the next A-list guy or anything. I just want to say it. And among the many times that I've rewatched Crazy Rich Asians, his proposal scene on the plane at the end— it's really top-level rom-com proposal acting. That's where he's kind of like fighting through passengers to yeah. get into the aisle. And he's and, being very charming yeah. and helping everyone put their seats up. And it's kind of, it's choreographed. He's like doing a lot, but also emoting mega charm. I, I mean, for sold. a debut role in a feature. Okay. I think Henry Golding's stock going up. How okay. about that? Stock going up. Okay. Who should we talk about next? Well, I wanted to double-click on Constance because oh, yeah. Constance Wu uh, has had a very interesting and some might say <laughs> controversial year. <laughs> Where should we begin? Well, okay, so after after uh, Crazy Rich Asians came out— I thought out, she was also excellent in Crazy Rich Asians. She was good. She was good. <laughs> <laughs> you don't like romantic comedies as much as I do. I love romantic comedies. I just thought that— Top three romantic comedies right oh. now. This po- We can do whatever we want on this podcast because it's, it's our time. When Harry Met Sally. Great. Do we count, like, the omnibus ones? Like, Love Actually? If you want to, you can. Okay, I, I, Love Actually came to mind, so I have to say it. Okay. And then there's a Korean movie. It's called English title, My Sassy Girl. Okay. I've never seen that, so I'm writing that down to watch. It might be on Netflix. Okay. Great. That's a great list. Okay. I accept. So did I prove my bona fides now? I mean, it's a wide selection. (laughs) We can talk about love actually some other time. That's a very controversial (laughs) choice. We got to avoid making value judgments on Crazy Rich Agents. But Constance Wu, after the movie, of course, she was known primarily for being a star of Fresh Off the Boat, Mm -hmm. the ABC family series based on Eddie Huang's book. So in May, Fresh Off the Boat got renewed for its sixth season. Yes, it did. One would think that the stars of said show would be happy about the show being renewed. However, (laughs) Constance Wu, on social media, both Instagram and Twitter, reacted very poorly. We've talked about this on Jam Session before. One of the most spectacular in public celebrity—I don't even want to call it a, a meltdown, just tantrums. Yeah, and that I've ever seen. She thought she was in her group chat, but it was actually in public. But here's the thing. I I don't think she thought she was in her group chat because it was two platforms. There's <laughs> no explaining away, like, oh, sorry, I typed this into the wrong thing on two platforms. One platform, you explain it away. Once you are also on Instagram getting those comments off, you're it, it's tough. I just looked at the tweet again today to research, and yeah. it, I'm going to just read it. So upset right now that I'm literally crying, uh, fuck. Right. And then following it up with fucking hell. Then she also starts responding to people. (laughs) Please don't forget about that. 
But then, can we talk about the statement that she released? Right. She tried to clean it up. Successfully, I guess, because the show's coming back and the creators are like, oh, all's good. But what did she say? Right. Well, it's an incredible, incredible long text that we can talk about. All right. It's like that kind of self-aggrandizing. Yeah. But please remember, like, it was a Twitter image text. And then the actual tweet was, these words are my truth. I hope you hear them. Which is an all—that's an all-time phrasing. That's actually really good. It's up there with I'd like to be excluded from this narrative. My truth is just a cringeworthy— Anytime I hear that. So she's mostly talking about how most of her apology is just like, I would prefer to be challenged than do things that are easy and pleasant, which is what she calls fresh (laughs) off the boat, which is so rude. And then she's like, but I know it was ill timing. And then she apologizes, whatever. Here's the last part. People can hold conflicting feelings in their heart. Sure. Which is true. I appreciate those who have given me the space and faith to believe what I say about both parts of my heart. Thank you. It's meaningful when you make the choice to believe women. Right. And that's how I it forgot ends. about that. She hitched Not her wagon. Not a great look. <laughs> Not a great look, Constance Wu. I mean, a really spectacular celebrity kerfuffle. I like these celebrity scandals when, like, no one's really getting hurt. Right. No one's— The stakes are low. The stakes are low. It's I mean— just rep- your reputation. Constance Wu might lose some money. ABC might lose some money. Probably not. They're both, like, successful entities— so everyone's fine. Maybe some feelings are getting hurt, but like not even really. Right. It's meaningful when you make the choice to believe women. No, thank you. Well, I mean, do believe women, but do not invoke it in this context. And so, you know, Constance will follow that up by, you know, a starring role in next month's heavily anticipated Hustlers movie. Yes. Alongside J-Lo, Cardi B, and a host of other actors, actresses. Yes. And the controversy around this now, you saw the page six story. I missed this. Oh, wow. All right. So basically, the whispers around Constance Wu being kind of a diva that's hard to work with are getting louder. Mm -hmm. And now with this hustler thing, there's unnamed sources who spoke to Page Six saying that she was a total piece of work on the set, hard to work with, more of a diva than J-Lo. And then there's these rumors that Constance Wu's people demanded that she be given top billing over J-Lo to media outlets or, you know, for whoever writes about the film. So Amazing. this like, it's more fuel to the fire. Yeah. So there are two things going on here. One is that women in any industry who are demanding or who ask for who ask for anything are often described as difficult right. and hard to work with. And people who have standards, you know, that there, there is absolutely sexism and a double standard at work here. That can be true at the same time that someone can actually be difficult and staying out of, their, you know, stepping a little bit further than maybe that they should. And we obviously don't know what the case is here, but whoever is advocating for Constance <laughs> Wu to get top billing over Jennifer Lopez is not doing their job correct however, in terms of setting expectations to their client. And just also facing reality. I'll say two things to that. In her defense, you saw the trailer. I did. She's in a shitload of the trailer. Like, she dominates the trailer. So much so that it seems like she's the main character. Obviously, J-Lo is five times a bigger star. Mm -hmm. But it really is kind of like a Constance Wu story. It seems like she's like the audience proxy. Well, if you were doing Constance Wu and Jennifer Lopez. Yeah. And J-Lo gets the hammer and is okay with that, then it's fine with me. Here's the thing. This is a pro J-Lo podcast. <laughs> and Jennifer Lopez. <laughs> I smell J-Lo. And Jennifer Lopez has wanted, been one of our great entertainers. Yeah, it's true. Across multiple industries for 20 years now. Yeah, On the it, 6 was 1999. It's out of benevolence, kind of like lending your hand to a star that's way below you. And I, saying, here, be on my level. 
Sure. But, you know, there's beyond my level and also show respect where yeah, respect true. is due. And Do also alphabetically, just but it wouldn't even, it would be J-Lo and then Constance Wu. I saw this when the fresh off the boat controversy was happening. I didn't really see it for the hustler stuff, but do you think there's like a, you were mentioning any woman who kind of demands Mm -hmm. what she wants or even deserves is pigeonholed as kind of being difficult. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's like a third angle here in her Asian-ness? And I saw some people talking about on Twitter that Asian women are typically perceived as being submissive and won't speak up for themselves and Constance Wu doing that creates this kind of, I don't know, cognitive dissonance or people can't really deal with it. Do you think the situation would be different if she weren't Asian? I'm sure it would, which, you know, is I think that who someone is and all aspects of who someone is are always a part of how they are perceived. And especially when people are discriminating, they can discriminate in all sorts of ways simultaneously. So I think it's definitely part of it. I don't know whether someone requesting top billing over J-Lo would play, like, in any capacity. So I think it's both—it's true that the response to how she's being covered and also probably how she's being received in Hollywood definitely has something to do with her Asian-ness. I also think that anyone being like, I'm more important than Jennifer Lopez would get— after releasing the statement that she released, yeah, would get a page six headline. Yeah, How about yeah, yeah that? totally. So yeah. I think I think they can both be true. I'm kind of neutral on my opinion of her. I do think there's a part of me, though, a small part of me that's like kind of impressed by her gall and sort of the opportunism because I think she realizes that this is like strike while the iron is hot Asian moment. Yes, she might not be doing it quite the right way. But shit, I mean, she's like shooting her shot. I appreciate anyone with ambition. And yeah. I I mean, I also, there's a certain flair to the way that she's going about this that we have talked about multiple times on this podcast, which is a skill all its own. Because at some point, just exposure and name recognition and having people know who you are is the name of the game. And we certainly do. I know a ton about Constance Wu, way more than I did when she was just starring on Fresh Off the Boat. But again, there's a certain style with which she's doing this yeah. that I appreciate. Well, I'm really curious when the movie comes out what the reception will be because it's basically, you know, a big movie for her. She's playing a stripper. Like, I don't know, consciously or unconsciously, I don't know how, you know, critics keep abreast of these mm-hmm. rumors and stuff, but like, will that affect how they view the movie? If it's a bomb or if she's terrible? You know, I mean, it's kind of like there's a lot riding on it for her, so. Yeah, absolutely. I think that'll be interesting. I don't know whether, to the extent that this movie, as I understand it, it's based on a New York Magazine story by Jessica Pressler, and it is about a group of strippers who saw the opportunity to level the playing field and take advantage of the opportunities that were presented to them, and they did it. And it seems that the movie is very much pitched in that sort of women advocating for themselves zone. So once you start adding in those layers of kind of real-world politics and stuff, it seems like people might start pulling real-life comparisons. But I don't think—I think it would be unwise for people to hold, like, the the fresh-off-the-boat statement against her. Yeah. I mean, do you think if she kills it and everybody loves it— Unwise and unfair also. (laughs) Everyone's going to forget all this shit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess people don't even think about it now. Or so. it'll you just, didn't even know the story that I was talking. Or it'll just be like a part of the legend, right? right? Of this of this person who is extremely um who advocates for herself. Right. 
and and does it well and has and has a successful career. Right, because you almost it. have to earn that, like Mariah mm-hmm. Carey did or somebody like that. She hasn't quite earned it yet, I think, in the eyes of many. But if she delivers a star-making turn here and carries right. the movie, then it's like, okay, you can be a diva. I think the main thing is is just to get a better publicist to write her statements for her. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you should have edited her, her apology <laughs> letter. Or just a social media editor, anybody? Before we move on from Crazy Rich Asians, we should talk about Aquafina. Yeah, of course. Who has had a tremendous year. And I mean, is she in, hosted SNL. She hosted SNL. Which was huge. She's in The Farewell, which is— Great movie. Definitely has Oscar buzz. I also loved it. About definitely to- has Oscar buzz. I feel like Billy Eichner. But it does. <laughs> at this point, it is—it's it's in the con- the conversation. I'm curious Oscar to see buzz how it goes. Oscar buzz in terms for best film or for her? Who knows? Wow. It's been a pretty slow year. We've talked a lot about this on The Big Picture. But I think The Farewell has had just like a tremendous response in terms of— Everyone who's seen it is really moved by it. It's uh, being released by A24, which has a lot of historical success at the Oscars, or recent success, anyway. Right. And I was really—I was surprised by it, even though it was a Sundance hit and everyone I knew had really loved it. I went in, and it was one of those magical movie experiences where I was like, oh, my God, I'm so moved by this. It really catches up with you, and I think that that kind of emotional reaction does a lot for movies. Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed the movie, too. I had one issue with it. Okay. I don't know. Should we go into it here? Yeah, why not? Well, it's also a spoiler, though. So if you haven't watched the movie, fast okay. forward for a couple it is, the, the movie is also based on a— Real story from uh, Lulu Wang. Lulu Wang. And also, she told it on This American Life, I believe. Oh, she did? Yeah. Okay. So it, the story's out there. Right. It's not a part of the plot or anything. It's just a part of the movie. Okay. Which is basically the scene where we're all supposed to cry— Mm-hmm. Maybe you did when when mm-hmm. the family is leaving China or like in a car headed to the airport. Oh yeah, I was weeping, and so were the strangers on either <laughs> side of me in the packed theater on opening weekend. I was like wiping tears from the eyes. Look, I have no pro- as a fan of rom coms and a fan of sad movies in general. I had no problem crying. I have no problem crying at movies. Okay. I wanted to cry in that moment. Okay. However, the music for that scene was terrible. Wow. And this is such a specific Donnie complaint. <laughs> and it was so overbearing and like, you need to cry right now music. Mm-hmm. And it was jarring because it was different from any other music you heard in the movie. Okay. I don't even know who this, who's, it was like a Mumford and Sons song or something like, something with kind of like grating English lyrics. Okay. About like, it's like when the Sushan songs play in Call Me By Your Name. I haven't seen that film, but— Okay, great film. I hated the Supion songs. And please don't at me. Continue. <laughs> and that's like a pivotal scene because that's like the, you know, yeah. start crying scene. And and it's the, basically the last scene of the movie. So you don't like being manipulated in movies. I, that's what we're learning. I, I don't mind being no, knowing that I'm being manipulated, but mm-hmm. you just got to do it in a skillful way. And, and it's certainly it sounds like I'm disparaging the director or whoever chose the music— it just didn't work for me. That's allowed. Yeah. Well, I mean, because it's a great movie and okay. I still recommend it. That said, it still seems like a stock up for Aquafina. Oh, hell yeah. yeah. His stock's crazy. He's got a Comedy Central exactly. show coming out. Anyway, instead of going through the entire cast, because we spent a lot yeah. of time on yeah. Constance, the question I had yes. is one year after Crazy Rich Asians yes. has been out, who, in your opinion, and I actually did some straw polls with other people in the lead up to this. There's a lot of buildup. That's great. In August 2019, who do you think is the most famous Asian American male and female celebrities? Wow. Okay. I'm putting you really on the spot because listeners, she had no idea I was going to ask her this question. 
I class- should specify maybe East Asian. Okay. Yes. And so no Aziz. But, sorry. But all ages. All ages. Oh my gosh, this is so hard. Okay. I mean, we just named a bunch. Well, of- I thought you were going to ask me who's the most famous in the Crazy Rich Asians cast, and I was going to say one person that we didn't talk about, but who I think is Michelle Yeoh. Michelle Yeoh, but I was going to say Gemma Chan, who is in the X, like the X Men stuff, and is like a huge Instagram celebrity. And in terms of pure numbers, famous. True. Is I think like really and underrated. She's about to be in the MCU as well. I think. Yes, exactly. She's she's making those moves. I don't think that she's the most famous, but in terms of at least within the Crazy Rich Asians cast, she's like maybe the most undervalued. Well, this is the thing too. The issue I was having with asking this question is, it's. Defining most famous or like right. b- biggest celebrity. Because, we talk about that all the time. Yeah, I'm sure you do because that's kind of what the show's about. But all right, so I'll just name some. Should okay. we start with female or male? Let's start with female. Okay. We already named Aquafina, aka mm-hmm. Nora Lum, Constance Wu, Gemma Chan. Then we have kind of legacy Lucy Liu, right? Sandra Oh, Ali Wong is kind of new. Ali Wong has the Netflix reach, which I think is also. Important, and we're going to have to talk about that in the male category. And I, you're not going to like one of the answers that I give. Oh yeah, yeah because I, I'm I, prepared for it, right? But so I think, in terms of numbers, I think Ali Wong has a lot of fans, but is probably not on a Gemma Chan level or even a Lucy Liu level, just because she is established and has. She was in movies when like. Millions and millions of people went to see movies. So I think if I had to say for younger generation, I probably would actually pick Gemma Chan, which I know is nuts. But over, I'm just over Aquafina? Instagram wise, yeah. Hmm. And kind of because you have to think about mainstream as opposed to like Aquafina is in The Farewell, which is like a lovely indie movie and maybe nominated for Oscars. And she's obviously, she was also in Crazy Rich Asians and she was in Ocean's 8. And she's going to be in shang Li, the MCU movie. Right. So I think she's on the way up. But I think Gemma Chan also, in addition to having the major franchise fame, has a lot of like Instagram fashion fame. I, I often use Kate Hallowell, who is a ringer staffer and who's the host of Tea Time, as an indicator of... Like, who's actually famous because she has all of these interests. I mean, she's just, like, young and actually knows things. And she's a huge Gemma Chan fan and, like, had been before even Crazy Rich Asians, I think. Fair play. So, to me, that's what I would say. Okay. Which I know is—it, like, might be very wrong, but at this moment, it's also just what's measurable, which is maybe a cop-out answer. It's not most influential. It's not most important even, but most famous. I suspect it might be that. You've defended your answer well. I what do you it. think? I'm a little bit biased. I was going to say Aquafina simply because, but maybe I'm changing or moving the goalposts because it, maybe I'm asking who's like the hottest or most bankable or walk in a room and most recognizable. Mm-hmm. Okay, so men. Yeah. Men division. Okay. I, instead of, I'll just tell you what my answer is. Yes. It's Ken Jeong. I, that's who I was alluding to with yeah. Netflix. I agree. And I also, Donnie wrote another great piece about Ken Jeong, which you should read on The Ringer. But I th- and, and you spoke to a lot of both why he's famous and what doesn't feel great about that right. in that piece. But obviously, he's been in movies like The Hangover and has been just really famous for a very long time and is still has Netflix specials and is in Crazy Rich Asians. And he's just kind of in everything and has a, the widest reach. Right. 
Do we feel great about that? But you said whitest. No, for a well, second. also possibly. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably not wrong. I don't think either of us feels great about that. Well, we have John Cho still, mm-hmm. Stephen Young. I asked some of my friends, and they gave me stuff like Andrew Yang, <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy Lin. I guess the new guy in the Marvel uh, well, movie you, is you gave Simi me actor actress. Yeah, no. Right. Andrew Hank doesn't. I mean, I suppose that's <laughs> BTS, acting of a sort. Right. Randall Park. I mean, BTS is wildly more popular than any of the people that we've just named. Right. Yeah. Or more I mean, famous. But they're not, anyway. really, they're not Asian American. Right. So I guess what I'm getting to is that there is still after Crazy Rich Asians. And of course, so many projects are in development. And, and it did create, I think, this, um, you know, boon for Asian related content, Crazy Rich Asians, the success of it did. But I still think a year later, there's no Asian-American star. We're, we're still talking about Ken Jeong, and I think that's—we need one. I think that's a great point. Yeah. I think—I hopefully that there are people— We're still fucking talking about Ken Jeong. <laughs> but we also <laughs> talked for a long time about Constance Wu. We did. She's not there yet. Yeah. I believe in her. Yeah, I do. And, you know, maybe one more ridiculous well, that's public a, experience. But that's kind of the point, not to gender it too much, but f- women are doing great. Yeah, that's true. We're not doing so great. Well, speaking as an Asian American man. Well, I believe in you. I think Steve, <laughs> I think Stephen Young needs to be more active. Yeah, I would love to see Stephen Young in literally everything. So it seems like he's being cast in more things. His profile is rising as well. It doesn't happen as fast as we might like. Yeah, I think I mean, that's these, a good point. These, there's like so many projects in development. Yeah. Congrats to y'all, Crazy Rich Asians cast. All right, that's great. We have two more mystery bags, and also we're going to do some summer reading. But first, we're going to hear from our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by Luminary, a new podcast subscription service with some of the best content around. I'm excited about Luminary because it's the only place you can listen to the newest show on the Ringer Network, Break Stuff, the story of Woodstock 1999. This is absolutely a podcast you can't miss. In 1999, a music festival took place in upstate New York that became a social experiment. There were riots, looting, and numerous assaults, and it was set to a soundtrack of the era's most aggressive rock bands. Incredibly, it was the third iteration of Woodstock, a festival known for peace, love, and hippie idealism. But Woodstock 99 revealed some hard truths behind the myths of the 1960s and the danger that nostalgia can engender. Along with Woodstock 99, Luminary gives you access to a bunch of other original shows from innovative, dynamic creators you can't find anywhere else, like our spinoff, The Rewatchables 1999. The Luminary app is free to download, and in addition to the can't-miss originals, you can use it to listen to thousands of podcasts, including this one. Whether you're into music, TV and film, comedy, sports, or more, Luminary has the right show for you. Check out Woodstock 99 and so much more only on Luminary. Get your first two months of access to Luminary's premium content for free when you sign up at luminary.link jam. After that, it's only $7.99 per month. That's luminary.link jam for two months of free access. Luminary.link jam. Cancel anytime. Terms apply. All right. Donnie. Yeah. Two more mystery bags. Okay, yeah. What's next? All right, so this is, I know, Amanda, that you're big into real estate. I am. Yeah. Um, so this as is a, kind as of— As a viewer, not as an owner, unfortunately. But, <laughs> but continue. This is kind of Asian real estate overlap. Amazing. Okay, so I don't know if you saw, there was a story in The Hollywood Reporter not too long ago, and I'm just going to read the headline. Yes. L.A.'s Koreatown pops— as Hollywood stars, execs relocate to booming neighborhood. Yeah. We've never really talked about Koreatown. I'm obviously not from L.A. I've never lived here. I've spent a lot of time there just with friends eating and stuff. But, I mean, remember actually somebody 
recently redrew the LA map with boroughs. Mm-hmm. What is Koreatown to a New Yorker? To a New Yorker? Yeah, oh, or like to New of... York. Outside of the Koreanness of it, is it like a Bushwick? You know, I wouldn't say so because I think Bushwick is so much. It's not further out, but it's on the. This is a loaded statement, but if Manhattan is kind of in the middle, or just geographically, if you're doing all of New York, then then Bushwick is inching towards the the outer limits of the new of New York City, right? Right. And one thing that's really interesting about Koreatown in LA is how central it is geographically. It really is pretty much as in the middle of things between like all the fancy people on the west side and like the SUV on the east side and the valley up north and south LA as well. It's really in the middle. And I think that that has a lot to do with how it's woven into the city and is also why it's being gentrified. We always used to joke, I mean, you used to live in New York, that when like the New York Times style section stumbles upon a neighborhood mm-hmm. and touts it, that's official sign it's that over. it's over. I yeah. mean, what, like, what is your impression of Koreatown? I mean, do you go there? Yes, I go there primarily to eat because there is delicious Korean food Amazing and many food. great restaurants. And that's mostly why I go there. I mean, there's obviously also, there are some fun bars. I mean, that's also how I experience LA is by going to restaurants and bars in various locations around the city. An interesting thing about Koreatown is how geographically close it is to Hancock Park, which is a long time. It's a very beautiful neighborhood and where a lot of Hollywood people have lived historically and still do. And so I think, I assume that some of it is just kind of that border expanding. I do think the line, do you know about the line? Yeah, of course. Hotel? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Of oh, course. No, no, no. <laughs> Can I just say this? As, a, as yeah. a person of Korean descent, but a lifelong East Coaster. Yeah. Koreatown, LA. I mean, if you guys don't know, it's the home home to the most Koreans outside of Korea. You know? Right. So, you know, if you live in New York, Koreatown is a block, basically. I mean, it's expanded a little bit, but it's not a hot spot. The other place in New York where Koreans mostly are is Flushing, Queens. That's like Flushing, Queens. Right. Koreatown here, it's like this vast adventure land for Koreans. Koreans that aren't familiar with it or didn't Mm -hmm. grow up there because it's like, you know, sprawling and there's like a million little shopping centers and secret restaurants and clubs and stuff like that. So it's just kind of funny that that neighborhood is being gentrified, like a neighborhood that has Korea in it with a lot of Korean people that live there. Right. Who live there, so. It does seem like the line, the hotel started, was a part of it as well, and that's where Roy Choi's restaurants were. Right. And lovely hotel. I stayed there once when I was visiting from New York. Now in D.C. as well? Yeah, and now you can't go there because it's such a, the lobby is such an intense party scene. Yeah. In the, the, the evenings, which I'm too old for. <laughs> so that's really intense. I'm I'm sure it's gentrifying, but I don't know. I don't know by which movie stars. We'll tackle gentrification in okay. another episode. All right, final yeah. mystery bag. Let's go. This one's more kind of nebulous. Okay. But we had a conversation offline yesterday. Yes. Not to betray any confidence. That's great. I love here, it. Let's but go. Yeah, yeah. We were talking about fashion, men's fashion. Oh yes. Oh boy. And so I asked you about this. I started this. I so. actually kind of felt. Under attack a little bit. Why? Because I, I felt you like the nice. things that you were disliking were. Okay. Th- I was thinking about what you, you were saying that you, you disliked. You weren't wearing a bucket hat. I wasn't. Yeah, it started, listeners, about bucket hats, which actually Kaya and I were looking. <laughs> I was telling Kaya what we were going to talk about, and we actually <laughs> jointly looked up celebrities that wear bucket hats. But to be specific, your beef is with men who wear bucket hats, not women, right? 
Because it's a yes. trend. It's like a, you know, oh, you know what? co-ed trend. I, I got to say, unless you're a child and you're wearing a bucket hat because you're cute and you can wear a bucket hat, I am not sure that I support the bucket hat for anyone. Wow. I support What's, sun what, protection. What, what, why don't, what is I it about the bucket hat? Is it the shape of it or is it you, obscures the face too much? No, because I think that, I do, like I said, I support sun protection, hats, sunscreen, whatever you want to do to protect yourself from the sun. I really <laughs> think that I, ju- I, well, I find it both aesthetically pretty silly I think it's pretty silly. And I like people who have fun with fashion. I think I I have fun in the clothes that I wear. I think that it should be an expression of self. I think that no one should take it too seriously. But there's something about when you are wearing an object that is supposed purposefully silly, if you're not taking yourself seriously, how am I supposed to? Mm. And so I think it both aesthetically just looks a little funny, but what the bucket hat symbolizes in terms of what you're presenting to the world, because fashion is about presenting yourself to the world. If you're wearing a bucket hat, I I got your number <laughs> and I'm good. And not maybe your I'll literal just, number. I'll keep it exactly. And I do not want your literal number. I that's one thing. I just really I don't feel that anyone wants to date anyone in a bucket hat. Well, so here's the thing. I think Do you want to date someone in a bucket hat? I have before. Okay. Wow. Well, you are a, a man among men, Donnie Clock. <laughs> so with an I, open heart. I think like the predominant men's fashion right now, I mean, it's kind of a trend that's carried over for a couple of seasons. Your husband would know this mm-hmm. working at GQ is kind of like I would say maybe advanced dad core is still kind of the trend, which is like comfortable. It's dadcore also with heavy streetwear influence. Right. And so it's a lot of my problem is when the it's dads trying to be 25-year-old core. Okay. That's that's a tough It's a fine line though. That's a tough a couple of quadrants to unite. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's a matter of like who's wearing it and how they can pull it off. Well, I think that all style is unique, ultimately, right? That you should be wearing things that suit you as opposed to a trend. And everyone can wear different things, and it's about finding your personal style. Is it fair to say, though, that you, aesthetically, as it applies to men's fashion, mm-hmm. gravitate toward a dandy Mark Ronson style? I more think that that's so, so rude to Mark Ronson. <laughs> dandy, that's not a pejorative. <laughs> Yes, it no, is. it's not. I think Mark Rodson has found a style that works very well for him. Modern, uh, you know, I don't know. Dandy is not well, a, so we'll, we'll talk about two things. Uh, One is my personal preference. Yeah. Which I I, I am a, um, I'm aging, as we all do yeah. in life. And I do find myself being drawn to people who look like grownups. You know, which is, I'm sure, some sort of 2019. <laughs> that's not me, listener. Sorry. Um, no, that's not, but that's, but I'm sure that's some like 2019 manifestation of like basic primal looking in the herd for the whatever instincts or whatever. Are you familiar with the the man repeller and the concept of man repeller fashion? Women who purposefully dress in a way that doesn't well, draw the attention of men? I think it's women dressing for other women. Okay. Yeah. And for a long time, I guess it wasn't cool for men to care about fashion beyond like wearing, you know, whatever suit or whatever thing. But women had a lot of options. Fashion was geared to us. We were kind of like living in our own world. And you might dress for yourself might more than you might dress for a man in your life, which is great, obviously, for a lot of reasons, you know, <laughs> feminism and whatnot. Right. And— 
I think that men are in a real women repeller phase. They're dressing for each other. Right. And it's very sweet. And I'm glad that you guys can all express yourselves. And you definitely are expressing yourselves. But it, I like it has definitely reached the literal woman repelling limit for me. <laughs> I'm just like, this is clearly not for me. And I am curious. And maybe it doesn't need to be, you know? Maybe it's just people should be dressing for themselves and for people who appreciate them. I do believe that. I certainly believe it for women, so I don't know why I'm applying the double standard to men. How about this? Beach only for the bucket hat. Yeah, I can dig it. Okay. I mean, but for me, it's not because— uh, What, do you like the moisture wicking? Like, what's going on with the bucket hat? I don't actually wear bucket hats, but I think it's—I mean, I do. I have at the beach before. I think it's—on certain people, it's cute. It looks cute. And cute is a style yeah. or a kind of a, you know, a I'm, look. I'm fine with that. Yeah. I think it definitely looks cute on four-year-olds. <laughs> and I, you know, a bucket hat for every child <laughs> and a normal hat for every adult. That's my platform. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, you know. That's if, all I had. I, here's what I'll say. If you wear a bucket hat and you feel good about yourself, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry for judging. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work on that on my vacation. Maybe maybe I'll come back wearing a bucket hat. How about that? <laughs> the next episode, you, you should, next you should Amanda, do a bet or something maybe, and you got to wear it. Maybe I'm just mad because I haven't been on vacation and maybe I'll come back with a with a bucket hat worldview. You should wear a tropical bucket hat the whole week you're on vacation. Okay. Well, take I'll a picture it. and put it on Instagram. I will not be putting it on Instagram. You will never <laughs> see that, but maybe I'll just get there emotionally. All right, before we go, we were going to do a quick summer reading, which I kind of threw at you, but clearly uh, it's vacation time, so I'm thinking about summer reading. So I ordered my vacation books like weeks ago. Very Amanda thing to I do. decided what they would be like at the beginning of June. We did a podcast episode about this, and I reserved them already, so I, I am reading them now. I can't wait to do a book report when I come back. I will be reading Summer of 69 by Ellen, Ellen Hildebrand. I will be reading Big Sky, uh, the new Kate Atkinson, Jackson Brody novel. I will be reading The Paris Diversion by Chris Pavone, which is a sequel to The Expats, which is a spy novel I enjoyed. And I will be reading How Could She by Lauren Meckling. And I couldn't be more excited, but Donnie is also a great reader. <laughs> Donnie recently sent me some book recommendations, so I just wanted to ask you what you have read lately that stayed with you, good or bad. I also own a Kindle. You don't have a Kindle, right? No, I don't, which is really nuts because I just— Because you're lugging five books with you. That's true, but I also travel with, like, kitchen knives so I can cook on vacation, so I have to check bags anyway. I have, like, a little knife roll, so I might as well just put the books in. And then you can take him to the beach. Like I, I get worried about like the Kindle and the water. Yeah, and no, all that I get sort it. Of stuff. I get it. I don't have like a long list of books. Yeah, but I, the book I did recommend to Amanda is "The Woman Upstairs" by Claire Massoud, yes. who, who also wrote "The Emperor's Children." Uh, I really, really enjoyed the book. It actually, I mean, just one sentence summary. It's about a middle-aged woman who kind of becomes obsessed with. A student in her class, she teaches elementary school, and that student's parents. And it's kind of a a story of obsession and love and betrayal. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. But one thing I— definitely could read this. (laughs) One thing I want to say about my reading lately is I've noticed that a couple of the books— I don't know how many I can name. I'll just say The Woman Upstairs. I read recently Who is Rich by Matthew Clam. I was just—I was looking at that on our bookshelf the other day and remembering that— 
I found it so uncomfortable. Yeah, it's very uncomfortable. Which it's about a divorce, yeah. essentially. And it's in the, it's first person in the person's head. And I just didn't want to be in this character's head anymore. So I I really did like just skim the last well, 75 you know what? pages. Woman Upstairs, similar vibes, similar protagonist. However, this is what I wanted to say is that I've noticed now for some reason, I've and not purposefully, but the universe is drawing me to these books where I'll, I'll find out like 50 or 75 pages in that the main character is 42 years old. <gasps> That's how old I am. Wow. And it's kind of scary. Unplanned? Unplanned. Wow. Those That's two books, and those are like two of the last four or five books I read. Yeah. Very unlikable main characters. Okay. Well, that has and nothing realized, to do with being 42, just so you know, right? But I realized, <laughs> it, it kind of shocked me because when, uh, you know, like before they revealed the character's age, and interestingly in both of these books, well, maybe actually in the in Women Upstairs, it's revealed earlier on, but it's kind of like, you don't imagine yourself to be the age of the character that's described. Like in Who is Rich, this divorcee that's kind of like, I don't know, down on his luck and mm-hmm. a failure. It's kind of like, you know, it's interesting reading books in middle age about middle age people. Do you imagine them to be older or younger when you're them? Yeah, older than I am, but actually, forty-two is old, pretty old. So no, uh, maybe it's not. I'm. Yeah. It's it's you're in the prime of your life. This is a respectful podcast. I can still wear bucket for, hats. Yes, when, <laughs> I don't know about that. We do have some rules, right? But we appreciate forty-two-year-olds. I'm really into it. I've been reading a lot of books about much older people looking back at their lives, which is in, basically in regret. Um, it, it varies. No, actually, I would say these are good. That I read another Ellen Hildebrand book. Do you know who Ellen Hildebrand is? I do not. I talk a lot about her a lot. She lives on Nantucket, and she writes two books a year about Nantucket. And they are plot-forward and really delightful, but they're usually a woman in middle age with, like, adult children having some personal revelations, and it usually involves looking at her life. But it, it always has a happy ending, which is nice. So I read another of those, and then I also read— Have you read Barbarian Days by William Finnegan? I haven't. This is a good place to end this podcast because this is a summer podcast. (laughs) And this is a—Barbarian Days is by a a wonderful writer named William Finnegan. He writes for The New Yorker, and he's a huge surfer and has been his whole life. And it's about his life through surfing, starting from when he was very young and growing up on the—here in Los Angeles and also in Hawaii because his parents worked in Hawaii for a bit— And he's just lived this remarkable life, and a lot of it has just been in the remarkable things that he's done to, like, find the perfect surfing wave. And so it's a lot about surfing, but it's a lot about growing up in the 60s and 70s, but, like, becoming a person in those times. And so you're watching his whole—it's his life arc as well. And it's definitely, like, a a person looks back at their life. You know, there's, like, a—he's writing about being a teenager with the wisdom that comes with being of a certain age and being as experienced as he is. But it's really amazing. And the most amazing thing about it, actually, because he talks a lot about surfing, but there are always these one, like, these sentence-long interludes, which are like, and that's when I was living, you know, in Poland for a year. And and he never follows up. There are all these things that aren't in this amazing book about his life and all the things he's done. And you're just kind of like, wow, people really do a lot mm. in the world. <laughs> and meanwhile, I just sit here and yell about bucket hats. <laughs> So I guess what I'm going to try to do is open my heart to bucket hats. I recommend that everyone else, you know, watch the one of the films that Donnie and I talked about or read one of the books and have a great summer. Donnie, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was and fun. And we will be back next week. 